So from from a like a client management standpoint, how do you guys manage expectations when things like this year have happened with the Fed and you're not able to hit your acquisition goals that you wanted to hit in the first place? How do you keep the relationships up with your investors and just keep that communication open for saying like, hey, here's why this is happening and here's why it's probably a safer bet to just hold that money until we can get good acquisitions? What's your strategy for that? Kind of communicate the investors and with the investors in three major ways. Every property puts out a monthly newsletter. So the people that are invested in that property get that letter. And it's relatively detailed. It has kind of my thoughts at the beginning. It has a, a financial summary with a link to the full financials. It has a resident engagement section, which people like to kind of feel connected to the property. And then it has some sort of section on what the expected next return payment will be. So that's one way that they can sort of gauge like where the sentiment is just on their property. Heroes are an inspiring group of people. Every one of them from the larger than life comic book heroes you see on the big silver screen, the everyday heroes that let us live the privileged lives we do. Every hero has a story to tell. From the doctor saving lives at your local hospital, the war veteran down the street who risked his life for our freedom, to the police officers and the firefighters who risk their safety to ensure ours. Every hero is special and every story worth telling. But there is one class of heroes that I think is often ignored. The entrepreneur, the creator, the producer, the ones who look at the problems in this world and think to themselves, you know what? I can fix that. I can help people. I can make a difference. Then they go out and do exactly that by creating a new product or introducing a new service. Some go on to change the world. Others make a world of difference to their customers. Welcome to The Hero Show. Join us as we pull back the masks on the world's finest heropreneurs and learn the secrets to their powers, their success, and their influence. So you can use those secrets to attract more sales, make more money, and experience more freedom in your business. I'm your host, Richard Matthews, and we are on in three, two, one. Hey, hello and welcome back to The Hero Show. My name is uh, Richard Matthews and today we've got live on the line Chris Lento. Chris, are you there? I'm here, Chris. Awesome. Glad to have you here, Chris. I know we were chatting a little bit before we uh, we actually got on the recording. You're coming in from Boston, is that right? Yeah, I'm in uh, Boston, right in downtown. You guys uh, getting close to the, uh, the the winter is coming? Like, is that where your eyes are at? Uh, no, we're still like squarely in the fall. Uh, falls in the Boston area are nice, tend to be pretty dry and weather's good, so... Winter here doesn't come really till the end of December. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah, it depends on where you're at. Our, my wife's family is in the Midwest, and it starts early there. Like, sometimes you'll get snow in October. <laughs> yeah, the Northeast was one of my wife and I's favorite places we've traveled over the course of, the, of our own travels. I really enjoyed the fall and the, what do you call it, all the tr color changing and stuff that happens up there. It's a right. really pretty the part of the changes. country. Yeah, we don't get that in the South. We get warmth all year round, but no color changing. So you got to pick, pick and choose. Pluses and minuses, right? <laughs> cool. So what I want to get into before we get too far into this, I'm going to go over your bio real quick, which I've got over here on my other screen. So Chris Lento is the founder and managing partner of EM Capital with a background in mechanical engineering from Carnegie Mellon and professional development training at Boston University and MIT. Chris brings a unique perspective to their multifamily real estate investment approach. Chris has over 20 years of experience in multifamily ownership, management, and investing. His vision and guidance drives them to uh, remain dedicated to a portfolio diversification through sustainable and socially responsible multifamily housing investments. Um, in addition to his academic achievements, Chris serves as a board member of Bay Cove, a nonprofit human services organization. Passion serves as a testament to his dedication in building a better quality of life, which carries over in his professional commitment to EM Capital and its investors. This unique blend of engineering expertise and real estate proficiency sets the foundation for their goal of making a lasting impact in the real estate industry and beyond, driven by their motto, building communities, engineering wealth. So, I know there's quite a bio to just get started with, but why don't you start off and tell me a little bit about what it is that your company does? Like, who do you serve? What do you do for them? Yeah, sure. So EM Capital is a multifamily investing company. So we, at its core, we buy apartment buildings. So 
100 to 300 unit apartments, mainly in the Southeast, uh, focusing on areas where there's job growth and population growth. We partner with investors to raise capital. We use our broker connections to buy good deals on apartment buildings. We buy them. We hire third party property management to run the day to day. We execute the business plan and we give our investors returns on a quarterly basis. And then we hold the properties for three to seven years and we sell the properties, giving the investor um, you know, their initial capital back, a uh, healthy return, and then tax advantages along the way. Um, and that was a good question who, who my customers are. And I kind of think we're a little different in that I, I view that we have two sets of customers. We have the investors who you know we partner with to raise capital and give returns. And that's more of a typical way that people in my business think of their customers. But we also think of our uh, residents as customers as well, because at the end of the day, they're the ones who are paying the rent, that's funding the property, that's giving the, the investments. And I think that that approach keeps residents happier. They stay longer term and it creates a more solid investment for everybody. Yeah. So it's a more profitable business when you actually take care of both sets of the people who are interested. And it goes right along Absolutely. with your motto too of building communities, right? Because you're actually you know, building something solid in the community as opposed to, I don't know, building a dump. <laughs> right, right, right. And we focus a lot on our investor, our resident engagement. So all of our properties have a monthly event, at least a monthly event. Like, uh, we just had a call this morning with somebody who had a very successful dog costume contest. So the residents all dressed their pets up and, you know, came in for like a wine and cheese kind of thing. And then they gave away gift certificates to local uh, restaurants. And people like that. They meet their neighbors. They develop friendships. They're, they're more likely to stay longer term and, or, and recommend the apartment to their friends. Yeah. Uh, so it works well. well. I have a, a friend of mine. He runs another a podcast called Elements of Community. And he talks a lot about how community is really one of the founding sort of pieces of any business being successful. I mean, it's interesting that you're like, you're actually in the business of building community. Yeah. No, it's it definitely a, a differentiator, I think. And we can see places that were. You know, in some markets, there'll be new builds coming in where they'll offer two months free. And then, you know, once that building fills up, the rent goes up and then someone down the street builds a new building and they're off offer two months free. So there's people that will just jump around. And and what you want is to create, a, well, if you leave our community, you're going to, your friends aren't going to be here and you won't be able to go to, you know, the Wednesday night pickleball game that you've set up. So you want to have it. Yeah essentially building community. Yeah. There's intangibles, right? You want the, I talk about that a lot with uh, how we build the culture for our own company and like our employees is that it's not just the money that you make as an employee that makes working for us valuable, right? It's the friendships and the connections that you make. It's the flexibility that we have. It's the potential to choose the work that you have. And it's the, like the impact that you have. And so like, if you take off all the intangibles and it's just the paycheck, then you have people that come in and out from your company and you have a lot of cost associated with replacing people and doing stuff like that. But if you build the whole culture and build the community of your company, then the intangibles become worth more sometimes than even the paycheck. And so you can have your, your staff stick around for a long time. And that makes for, you know, a better, more profitable, more valuable business. Right. Absolutely. I mean, if you're competing on price, then you're just a commodity. So if you're adding other things, those intangibles, that, that's, you're adding quality to people's lives. We have 620 doors under management right now. Do you have a goal? Like how many doors you want to have under management? Or do you keep that like that's the number you want to keep and you just sort of cycle through investments? What's your sort of plan there? Yeah, no, we wanted to grow in 2023 by another 300 doors. 
But I also like to think of it less than a, a number of doors goal in, a, in a assets under management goal, because, you know, a, a door here in Boston is a lot different in price than a door in Alabama. So it's kind of a metric that doesn't mean that much. In my opinion, it's very widely used in the industry and I'm always surprised. But yeah, we wanted to have one have 200 million in assets under management by the end of 2023. And are you getting close to that? I know we're getting near the end of 2023 here. How's we, the goal going? I will say that the Fed has not helped the industry this year. So we did 60 million in acquisitions in 22, and we have done no acquisitions in 2023. We've been very close, a lot of deals, but with the Fed moving around so much, it's, it's been very difficult. Yeah, yeah. Which I guess also stands to show, you know, one of the, I got a friend of mine who does multifamily and self-storage, and he talks about multifamily and self-storage as being one of the most recession-proof investments, because even when the market goes up or down, you can keep the cash flow running in the business. Have you seen that to be true as well? Yeah, absolutely. The, the valuation may go up and down, and it may be more difficult to acquire when lending gets tough, but the demand for multifamily is very strong. We've seen no dips, you know, in our occupancy over the last couple of years, and even through the pandemic, right? When the pandemic first started, we were, I mean, terrified that no one was going to pay their rent. We're sort of running worst case scenarios where half the people don't pay and what happens and pre-talking to lenders about, hey, can we, what, what happens if we can't pay you and all this stuff? And yeah, it, it saved 90 plus percent payments through the, the whole pandemic. That's awesome. And it gets, it just serves to, to your one set of customers, the investors, how good of an investment multifamily can be because even in tough economic times like I mean who would have imagined we had something like a global pandemic in our lifetimes and the investment was still solid yep. right right absolutely and and really what it comes down to right now at least is that there's just a shortage of single family and multifamily housing in the US especially where people are moving which is you know, primarily the southeast uh, across to Arizona uh, they just can't build things fast enough for the population growth. I actually, I have a something that I think is really funny about that because I think the global pandemic made a huge shift in that. A lot of companies are, have moved to remote work and a lot of people have moved to remote work. And a lot of people realize that like, hey, if I can work and have this job anywhere, why would I stay where there is winter? <laughs> and then everyone's moving Definitely. to the southern part of the country. Yeah. And it really accelerated a trend that was already happening. I mean, going back 10 years, there was already a, kind of a outflow from the Northeast, uh, from the Midwest and from a little bit Northern California, the, the warmer states. And then the pandemic just really sped it up. Yeah. I, uh, I still tease my wife's family because they're in the Midwest and I'm like, you know, the South exists, right? Like <laughs> you can come out of the winter. <laughs> so right. yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, well, a but I'm in Boston and I'm not moving. So you're going to stay there yeah. forever. Um, yeah, I, I always, I always tease my, my family who lives Northern, the Northern States, um, all of our friends and family. I'm like, listen, like winter is a great place to visit. <laughs> so they can go to snow ski and then leave, go back down to where it's warm. Well, what I want to get into next is your origin story, right? Every good comic book hero has an origin story. It's the thing that made them into the hero they are today. And I want to hear that story. Were you bit by a radioactive story that, or, you know, spider that made you get into business or did you start as an, in a job and moved on to become an entrepreneur? Basically, how did you get here? Yes. I graduated with a mechanical engineering degree and immediately got a job working for effectively a defense contractor doing kind of big programs like Navy programs that had 20, 30 year timelines associated with them. And I enjoyed it. It was, you know, what I went to school for and I dove in and then right in parallel, I got my first rental property here in Boston, you know, just renting and 
I looked at what I was paying and my roommates are paying and I kind of looked at the building and was like, who owns this thing? How does this work? And then in parallel, I just started reading books and uh, diving into, you know, residential real estate investing. And two years later, I bought a three family, uh, moved into that, rented. This is pre, uh, you know, bigger pockets, the Burr strategy, which people talk about. I just moved into one, fixed the other ones up, bought one down the street about three years later and sort of viewed it as... Um, something I could do on the side. And then when I retire, I'd have this cash flow that would be, you know, augment my retirement or I wasn't really thinking long-term, just, you know, acquiring them. And then after about 10 years of my job, I sort of got a good scope of what the defense industry was, where I fit in it, what I would have to do to kind of get to the top of the heat. It was really a lot of travel, a lot of not so productive meetings, uh, a lot of politicking. And it just really started not, it didn't seem like what I wanted it with my life. I, so I did some more education and I basically learned the syndication model, which is a business. And it allowed me to think, oh, this could something I could do full-time rather than kind of on the side. So I, about seven years ago, I quit my full-time job, ramped up this business and growing since. So for our audience who may not know as much about real estate as they like I do, can you explain what syndicate means? Sure. So a syndication is when a sponsor, which is me or a general partner, finds a property to buy, puts the financing together, and then reaches out to a pool of investors. Typically, they're friends and family or extended friends of family networks, not always. And those people can invest a, a reasonably small amount of money. Our minimum is $50,000 per investor. And they bring the capital into the deal. Uh, we create an organizational structure where they have limited by liability as a limited partner. So they're you know, really only potentially liable for their portion of the investment. And they have no managerial responsibilities. There's no phone calls. There's no decisions to make. There's really very, very limited interaction. And then the sponsors run the deal. They hire property management. They execute the business plan. We, we talk to our property management kind of four times a week. And then the investors get their preferred returns on a quarterly basis. So we take the cash flow from the property, we pay our operating expenses, we pay our capital improvement expenses, and then the investors get their percentage of what's left over every quarter. And then when we sell the property three to seven years later, they get their initial capital back and then they get pretty good return if things go to plan, which they happen yeah, today. Yeah. So. It is one of my favorite vehicles of investing, uh, everything I've ever learned about. And I've done a lot of study and we've got a lot of people on this podcast. We've talked about investments, but the syndication strategy, particularly for someone like me who runs um, a profitable business, I've always liked the idea of like, hey, I love real estate. I want to put my money into real estate um, and real estate's, you know, we've already talked about how good of an investment it can be, but there's so much to learn about real estate, right? Learning how to manage properties and buy, or buy properties and acquire properties and manage them and keep the upkeep going and how do you get people into the properties and how do you keep the occupancy levels acceptable? There's just, there's, it's, it's a whole business unto itself, right? And so in order to learn there's real estate, to... I would have to learn a second business and I already have a business that's doing well, but right. so being able to take the cash flow from my company and diversify that into real estate, this indication model really allows for something like that to happen where I can take the excess cash flow that our company generates and move it into real estate without having to learn to become a real estate investor, quote unquote, right? Yep, absolutely. And I think it fits a good slot between REITs and yeah. doing it yourself. Yeah. So, and I've always just loved that as a model because for someone like myself, I can work with someone like you or someone who does the, you know, something similar and I can take that cash flow, take the cash flow that we have and you get 
you get the you can t- park your money in some place that's going to pay you a good return, right? As opposed to like putting it into, I don't know, a CD or a stock or something that might go all over the place. And you're going to get the tax advantages. You get the cash flow in your case quarterly. You get the cash out cash flow when you guys sell the properties in a few years. So you get multiple sort of I don't know, multiple ways that your income starts working for you as opposed to just sitting there. So I always love that strategy and can't wait till yeah. we're doing it regularly with our company. Yeah. And then there's the tax advantages as well, which can really help. Out uh, how tax advantages work for those of us that are, you know, because I know there's probably lots of different ways we could talk about this and there's accounting and legal stuff involved with it. So let's keep it like surface level. But, you know, yeah. in this story, right, I have excess profits for my company. I could either take that as owner's draw or we can maybe invest that in there. How does that affect our tax game that we're playing with keeping as much money as we can from what we earn? Right, right. So first I'll say I'm not a CPA and this is not tax advice and I I don't play one on TV. And the answer is different for everybody. And that's what makes it kind of a complicated question because it really depends on what your finances look like and my, you know, versus my finances. Um, But at a, a broad strokes, what we do is we depreciate the asset. So one great aspect of real estate is that, um, let's say a, a $10 million building in, according to the IRS, after you buy it 29 and a half years later, the physical structure is worth $0. Now, of course it's not, but they let you depreciate it over that 29 and a half year period. So at your typical case, just every year, 129th of the building would be a loss that you can put against any income from that building. Now, what we also do is accelerated depreciation that the IRS allows you to do where you do a a study and you say, well, it's not just a building, it's carpets, it's appliances, it's roofs, and those have different lives. And long story short, you can depreciate a lot of the, about a third of that structure in year one. So you have a big paper loss. So what that loss can be applied to is the cash flow from that year one. So if you're getting your quarterly returns, those are effectively tax-free in most cases for that while you're getting them. And then at sale, there's a catch-up for that, but it's at a lower tax rate than you would pay for ordinary income. Um, So if you're a doctor or have like a regular W-2, that's your effective tax benefit. If you're a real estate professional, you can put, and additionally, you can put those losses against other things in the same category. So if you had other rental income or you had other passive income, you could take the losses from the real estate against that as well. Yeah. So to put it in easy math terms for people, if you have income, say your income is $100 and you have a depreciation of $30, you would normally have to pay taxes on $100, but you could take that depreciation and now you only have to pay taxes on 70 instead of 100. Exactly. Yes. And, and the big question is what you can take that depreciation against. And you can certainly take it event against returns you get from the real estate investment. And the question is, do you have other gains that you can offset with that depreciation? And that's depending on yeah. other That's where it starts to get complicated with CPA involved. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, so it's a really fascinating way to look at, at your income because you know, there's a lot of, you talk about wealth. Wealth is not just the amount of money that you make, but it's the amount of money you get to keep. Uh, right. And so depreciation yep. and the tax benefits help on both sides, right? So you can get, it helps you create more income and then helps you keep more of the income that you create with the real estate. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Lots That's of wins. 
So what I want to talk about next then is your superpowers, right? Every iconic hero has a superpower, whether that's a fancy flying suit made by their genius intellect or be the ability to call down thunder from the sky. In the real world, heroes have what I call a zone of genius, which is either a skill or a set of skills that you were born with or you developed over the course of your career to really energize all of your other skills. So I like to frame it like this. If you look at all the skills that you've developed over the course of building your real estate company, there's probably a common thread that ties those skills together. That common thread is where your superpower would be. So with that framing, what do you think your superpower is in your real estate business? Um, well, so this is not a question that's totally out of the blue because um, I had an inkling of what I was particularly good at innately. And then I've been taking some entrepreneurial coaching over the last couple of years. And one of their focuses is something like this. It's called unique ability. And, uh, and it just clarified what I was already thinking. And I think what my superpower is, is I'm very good at connecting ideas together. So for example, if you have three people at a, around a table with different perspectives, different points of view, um, and they're kind of talking past each other, um, I'm very good at understanding multiple perspectives and aligning them so that they're actually talking to each other. And that's a meeting example, but where it applies like in real estate is I'm very good at working with brokers and investors and um, accountants and kind of seeing how the whole big picture is going to work and making sure that everyone's communicating correctly and that we're aligned on what we're actually trying to do. Yeah, you're a deal builder, right? You put all the pieces together and line it all up. Right, like, right. here's what you want and here's how what they're offering actually is what you want. <laughs> and you can... Right, because everybody has their own piece, right? Like a lawyer's thinking mitigate risk. You know, a broker's thinking sell. We gotta, you know, get things moving. So keeping those things aligned uh, is what I'm yeah, very it's, good at. It's kind of like being multilingual, right? You can speak broker and you can speak lawyer and you can speak bank bank, and you can like, here's how this deal fits for your language. Here's how it fits in your language. Here's how it fits in your language. And you can get the deal to actually happen. Whereas if they try to talk to each other, nothing happens. They need a facilitator. Right. Yeah. And I used to think that it was like a jack of all trades sort of approach. It's, it's different than that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it, it's actually a fairly common skill for CEOs and entrepreneurs. And one of the reasons why is like, I see this happen a lot in software development. And just as a for instance, where you have people who are, you like, you have the person who's like, this is what I want done. And they're like, they have an outcome that's in mind. And then you have the people who are going to develop the software. And if you try to take the person who's, here's the outcome I want, and you put them in a room with software developers, they can't talk because they're talking in terms of like code and language and requirements and all these other things. You need to have that facilitator that can speak both languages. Right. And that's where like exactly. project management and that kind of stuff comes in. You can learn to speak those things. And you see that just, it just happens in every industry. You always have the person who's like, okay, that I need to have, you need to have someone who has that skill of being able to communicate to the different groups of people so you can actually get to the end product. In your case, you know, assets under management and building communities. Right, right. absolutely. Yeah, I think um, in traction, it's like the integrator role. Um, which is and it's kind of an incredible superpower. And I don't think people who have that skill value it as much as it sh as they should. I don't know where you're at on that, but it's an incredible skill to have. Well, and if you don't have it, you have to have someone on your team who does. <laughs> but it's not flashy, right? Like you're not the one excelling at anything. Like you're not closing the deal or figuring out the super hard problem, but you're like making it all come together. So I, I mean, I know who I am and I, I think it's valuable. But it's not like the goal scorer, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's, it's the, I don't know what you call it, but like the person who gets all of the, all of the acclaim in like a sales organization is the one who closes the sale. But like the one who actually does everything is like the project manager. 
like project manager that makes everything happen, like after the sale happens and keeps customer happy and gets right. everyone in the right spot, like project manager people are the best. Uh, I agree. I agree. <laughs> oh, man. So let me talk about the flip side then. You know, every super, every Superman has his kryptonite and, you know, every Wonder Woman can't remove her bracelets of victory without going mad. So you probably have a flaw that tells you back, something that you struggled with. For me, it was perfectionism. I struggled with, you know, I want, I, I'm a systems person. That's my superpower. And so the problem with being a systems person is that like, you could always make it a little bit better before you ship it. And if you never ship it, then you've not actually done anything. <laughs> so... Yep. You know, for you, and I think more important than what is the flaw is how have you worked to overcome it so that maybe our listeners can learn a little bit from your experience? That's a good question. I, my limitations are on like kind of the sales side. And I'm just probably more of a systems person as well. I mean, I was a systems engineer. I like to understand how things work and make them work optimally. And I'm not big on like pushing things. If I'm not enthusiastic about it, I'm not going to fake it. And, you know, the, you have your own business. Marketing is important. Um, projecting the bigger picture and enthusiasm. And, you know, I'm enthusiastic about things, the storytelling aspect, right? Absolutely. And I'm enthusiastic about things that I'm enthusiastic about, but it's, I, I can't manufacture, I can't fake it. And I think that what, well, how I, you know, what I figured out is that I shouldn't have to, and I need to find people that are, are salespeople and people that are marketing people and, you know, basically the right skill set and then partner with or hire those people and not try to do things that are just not in my strength. Yeah. So here's my all important question for you on that. How long did it take you to realize that you needed other people to shore up your weaknesses? Because it took me a good long time, like 10 years. Yeah. Longer than it should have, I guess. Well, and I don't know why it seems so obvious in, in retrospect. Right. Well, I feel like there's this concept that you should Become aware of your weaknesses and then work hard on them so that they're now your strengths. And, and you know, I think it's more you should know your strengths and work in them and then find people that have other strengths that are complementary and then work with them. I have, it, uh, I, I remember getting that first message for a long time in the business community. They're like, hey, wherever your weaknesses are, focus on those and turn them into strengths. And they realize that yeah, yeah. what you're doing when you do that is you're trying to operate in a world that's not yours, right? Um, it's one of my favorite books that I read recently was uh, Profit First by Mike Michalowicz. And he talks about, um, you know, there's this world of accounting that everyone, like, you have to do accounting for your business. But it's really hard to operate and make decisions that way because, you know, most entrepreneurs, they look at their bank balance and they like, and they make decisions right. based on their bank balance. He's like, so instead of trying to force yourself to learn accounting, how about you build a bank balance system that allows you to you know, you can still do all the counting you need to do for the government, but your actual, like the way that you operate is just helps you do the way, the things you need to do. Right. And, and so it's just focusing on like, how do you build your business in a way that just focuses on your strengths and, and, and your natural tendencies, but just make those right, correct. Right. And I've seen that happen so much in my business, right? Whereas anytime I try to focus on, let's change the way that I am, right. And try to make that better as opposed to let's just figure out how to make my business operate well the way that I exist now, right. um, yep. then you get a lot better results from that. And you can find other people or other systems that help shore up any of the weaknesses. And that, right, right. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and one thing is when you're not being who you are operating in your strengths, not only are you not really particularly good at it, but it's a huge energy suck. Like you just are doing something you don't like to do. And it's not only is it hard, you're not good at it, but you're like drained when 
you could be focusing on things you're good at, staying energized, and then there's there's people that are that are good at and like almost everything. So you just have to find the right people and they're energized about doing their thing. That's one of the things that I've learned over the course of my own career is that I used to be really interested in, for lack of a better phrase for this, saving my time. I wanted my time to be the most valuable thing. And I've realized as I've become a better entrepreneur that the thing that I really need to be protecting is my energy. Yeah. And because if your energy is protected, Sometimes you don't care how much time you put into something that energizes you. You'll spend all day doing it, working on it and having a good time and having a blast and it gets you energized to get up and do the next thing and really be productive and really move things forward. But if something's an energy suck, it almost doesn't matter how much time it takes. If it takes 10 minutes and it ruins the rest of your day, like you, right. you have to protect yourself from those things. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's very good. Very good insight. I totally agree. And yeah, that all comes back to learning where your strengths are and learning how to hire for those things and learning how to be like, hey, this is where I'm good. Find other people that come along and help you build the other things. In your case, you know, the storytelling and the marketing and the things that you just don't care about. <laughs> so why worry about yeah, it? Yeah, it's just not my thing. Absolutely. So I'm going to talk then a little bit about your common enemy. So every superhero has an arch nemesis, and it's a thing that they constantly have to fight against in their world. In the world of business, we like to put it in the context of your clients. And so for the sake of this discussion, let's maybe use your investors. And it's a mindset or it's a flaw that you're constantly have to fight to overcome so you can actually get them the result that they come to you for. If you are thinking common enemy in real estate investing, what is the common enemy that you regularly have to sort of fight against? Well, I mean, right now I'd say the Fed. <laughs> Bigger picture, I think it is how to stay disciplined on acquisitions. Because, you know, an adage in real estate, which I definitely believe is true, is you make money when you buy. So... You know, these are relatively complicated properties. You know, they have value add strategies. We're going to do renovations. We're going to increase rents based on interior renovations. We're going to add valet trash, which is, you know, we expect to get a premium on that. So we have a, you know, relatively complicated model. But at the end of the day, it comes down to maybe three key assumptions. You know, what your exit sales price is going to be, what your rent growth is going to be, and then your kind of occupancy expectations. Um, and the speed at which you can implement your business plan. So you can turn those knobs and make bad deals look good pretty easily. And knowing that, well, you have to provide returns for your investors and you want to like, keep deal flow, but you want those deals to be good. Um, that is, I think, staying disciplined is, is critical. And I think we do a good job with that by, you know, I'm in job, I'm in heavily involved in acquisitions and operations. I, I see the daily, the day-to-day -day operations of our existing properties. And I know, hey, I don't want a bad property in my existing property in two years having to deal with what that means, which is below expectations for investors. Yeah. So, and that could come from anything from like, it's actually hard to get the occupancy or the business plan's not going to work out. You know, you fudge the numbers a bit here or there. Yeah, and they are assumptions, right? I mean, we don't know what's going to happen in five years. We can look at the forward yield curve or, or market predictions, but um, at the end of the day, you have to make a best case judgment that we think that the Atlanta market can command 3% rent growth for the next three years. And, you know, a global pandemic comes and it's 10%. Well, that's great. Or, I don't know, some Atlanta area automaker lays off a bunch of people and it's flat. Um, so it's, you know, how, how conservative are your assumptions? And then if you make ultimate, you know, extremely conservative assumptions, you'll never buy anything. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's the balance. You got you got to move forward enough to actually acquire properties, but you know, be conservative enough that you're not acquiring, well, crap properties to be blocked. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yep. And you need you know this year's been tough. To, you know, we want to be acquiring properties in a cadence that we can keep our investors, you know, able to invest with us. Yeah, that's one of the things that yeah. I was thinking too when you said earlier, like, hey, you had a 200 million number acquisition number and over the last couple of years only able to hit like 60 million of that. And it's like from an investor standpoint, I'm like, if you do a good job for me and I get my money back and I make my thing, now I've got a larger pool of money that I want to invest with you again. So in order for that to work, you have to continue having acquisitions going. Um, yep. Otherwise, I'll find someone else that I can give my money to. Absolutely right. So then there's a lot of more pressure to get deals, but you have to, you know, basically stick to your principles and, you know, do the conservative underwriting and acquisition that got you where you are. So from from a like a client management standpoint, how do you guys manage expectations when things like this year have happened with the Fed and you're not able to hit your acquisition goals that you wanted to hit in the first place? How do you keep the relationships up with your investors and just keep that communication open for you know, say like, hey, here's why this is happening and here's why it's probably a safer bet to just hold that money until we can get good acquisitions. What's your strategy for that? Right. So we kind of communicate the investors and with the investors in three major ways. Every property puts out a monthly newsletter. So the people that are invested in that property get that letter. And it's relatively detailed. It has kind of my thoughts at the beginning. It has a, a financial summary with a link to the full financials. It has a resident engagement section, which people like to kind of feel connected to the property. And then it has some sort of section on what the expected next return payment will be. So that's one way that they can sort of gauge like where the sentiment is just on their property. And then I have a newsletter that goes out to everybody on my investor list. And that's, you know, what the business is doing. So maybe there'll be a property highlight if something interesting happened with, you know, one of our existing assets, but it's more like my take on the economy, different topics every month. But a lot of them is my thoughts on acquisitions. Like, you know, we've been uh, in best and final on three deals. We missed them. We're, we're disappointed we missed them, but we felt that we couldn't come up that million that they wanted to close it because that's a million on the other end that we don't, weren't confident would be there at the sellout in five years. So we sort of keep them apprised on where, where our head's at. And then additionally, I schedule what we call dangers, opportunities, and strengths calls with the investors. We try to say like, you know, if this goes well for you, basically in three years that we had the same conversation, what would have to happen in those three years where you were like, this has been a great relationship. You know, you've met all my expectations. You've exceeded my expectations. What would that look like? And it helps us get us get an idea of where their investment goals are. You know, they may say it means that I cashed out and I bought a boat. And you're like, okay, that's good to know that you have a, a goal for this money and, and that it's going to go towards that thing. Or, you know, it's that, you know, Things are going great and I'm going to keep rolling with you and, you know, Mike will keep doing it or something. And you're like, oh, this person's thinking very long-term. And it kind of gets you in that different frame of mind where you're thinking long-term. Um, and then we can have those conversations. And that'll bring up, hey, you know, you haven't had a deal in three months and I'm sitting on this 100K. What do you think? And we can have those conversations. That's awesome. So, and I, lo I love that you're having like several different ways that you're communicating with your investors from their specific properties to their like life goals. And just seeing how that's because, you know, for the work that you do, I imagine you don't have a ginormous pool of investors. It's probably a smaller set that you have nice, intimate relationships with that you're doing work with year in, year out. Yeah, we have about 30 active investors. 
and then we have like a hundred in our kind of like get that investor updates. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So of course it makes sense yeah. to have a lot of high touch points with a small number of right. people like that who you're doing business with over the course of time. So let's talk about the the uh, flip side, right? So if the your common enemy that you're fighting against is you know, the Fed and some of those that investor stuff that you're talking about, the driving force is the flip side, right? It's what you fight for. So just like Spider-Man fights to save New York or Batman fights to save Gotham or Google fights to index and categorize all the world's information. What is it that you guys fight for at EM Capital? So I think our, like, you know, from an investor perspective, the big myth is make people aware that these alternative direct investments exist. So a huge part the world just doesn't know that you can invest in private placement investments. So they think there's stock markets and bonds and and that's it. And there's a whole lucrative world of non-Wall Street-based finances, uh, financial instruments that you can invest in that have typically better returns than the Wall Street stuff um, and are more interesting. And people just are not aware of them. And I think they're not aware of them because Wall Street likes it the way it is. So it, it would be to you know allow people to truly diversify their portfolio with um, assets that are non-correlated to the S&P 500 and to the stock market and make people aware of you know, what's out there. I mean, this is what every single you know, ultra-rich person is doing is they're investing in non-stock market assets to diversify their portfolio. And everyday people just are not aware that it's out there. Uh, and I was like, for someone like me, the type of investment that you offer to someone like me is one of the only truly passive investments, right? Where your money is actually doing the work because you're doing all of the work on the investment property and we're just providing the money. So the money is actually getting a return on itself and there's no labor right. involved in Absolutely. it on our side other than maybe, you know, talking with you every once in a while to see how it's going. Right, right. Making that upfront decision and then yeah, following up. Following up. That's all there is to it. I love that. So I'm going to talk practical, right? I call this the hero's tool belt, practical portfolio show. Just like every superhero has a tool belt with awesome gadgets like their batarangs or their web slingers or their big magical hammers. I'm going to talk about the top one or two tools you couldn't live without to do what you do in your business. It could be anything from your notepad to your calendar to your marketing tools to something you use for your actual product service delivery. Something you think is essential to getting your job done on a daily basis. What is that for you? Um, so, I mean, number one would be our underwriting model. So what so is an underwriting model for those of us that are uneducated? Yep. So it's a spreadsheet, a spreadsheet where you put in all the information about a specific apartment complex. So how many units, what are the unit types? What are the rents for those unit types today? You know, the market rents, um, what is the price for that property? What is the debt you can get on that property? You know, the interest rate, the term, what rate are you going to appreciate those rents at? So are they going to go up 3%, 2%? What are all your operating expenses? What are the predictions for those operating expenses? Are your taxes going to jump up in year three because North Carolina assesses their taxes every five years just to make it confusing. So they jump randomly. So you put all, these, all the hard information that you have into these models and then there's assumptions you need to make. So at, you know, at the exit, what do I think the multiple on the income will be for a sales price. That's like cap rate for those of us in the commercial real yeah, estate. Cap rate. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's a cap rate. Yeah. And then it's been kind of, I put in effectively what I want my investor returns to be. And then it kind of produces a price that, that we can pay for the property. And that um, gives you sort of like your so baseline that, of a yes, no, kind of like a, a pass fail on the property. It does. Well, it gives you a price, right? So if they're asking 52 million and it spits out a price of 46, you sort of know 
Like that's your price. Yeah. So you have negotiation. You're like, listen, this is where it needs to be uh, for it to be a yes. Right. For me to my objectives, it needs to be at this number. Yeah. And and there's a lot of nuances to it, but that tool is, I mean, paramount. Yeah. And I've heard in the real estate world, everything is negotiable. So if it's capable that's, of being negotiated, it is all negotiable. But my sort of my follow up question on that is I know you come from the engineering world. So is your underwriting model something that you have developed yourself or developed internally here at the company or something that you picked up over the course of time? What, where did that how did that come to be? Yeah, so I learned how to underwrite through like a training course or multiple training courses. And the first one I took kind of gave you a model and then I updated that model and then kind of scrapped it, picked up a new model and then I built my own at times. But currently for the last three years, we worked off a model from a course that I took. It's kind of spawned a life of its own to adding a lot more capabilities, uh, a lot more scenarios than, you know, than it originally had. So I would say it's, it's bones are not custom, but the rest of it. The rest is. of it is custom. What you guys do now? Yeah, I got to say, I know you're my kind of nerd because your favorite tool is a spreadsheet. So <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's I like spreadsheets. Yeah, spreadsheets. I have my profit spreadsheet for our company, and I show it to people. I'm like, here's how we track everything down to like the average hours we expect certain labor things to take, and they're like, how do you know all this in your business? Nice. I'm like, because I track it, and because it allows us to do what we do at the prices we do it for. <laughs> so super nerdy. Yeah, but I, I appreciate I that. I, People that don't like spreadsheets, just I don't understand it. Yeah, I don't get it either. I'm like, listen, math is great. If you can have a spreadsheet, do all the math for you. Right, exactly. Speaking of heroic tools, I want to take a few minutes to tell you about a tool we built that powers the Hero Show and is now this show's primary sponsor. Hey there, fellow podcaster. Having a weekly audio and video show on all the major online networks that builds your brand, creates fame, and drives sales for your business doesn't have to be hard. I know it feels that way because you've tried managing your show internally and realize how resource intensive it can be. You felt the pain of pouring eight to 10 hours of work into just getting one hour of content published and promoted all over the place. You see the drain on your resources, but you do it anyways because you know how powerful it is. Heck, you've probably even tried some of those automated solutions and ended up with stuff that makes your brand look cheesy and cheap. That's not helping grow your business. Don't give up though. The struggle ends now. Introducing Push Button Podcasts, a done-for-you service that will help you get your show out every single week without you lifting a finger after you've pushed that stop record button. We handle everything else, uploading, editing, transcribing, writing, research, graphics, publication, and promotion, all done by real humans who know, understand, and care about your brand almost as much as you do. Empowered by our own proprietary technology, our team will let you get back to doing what you love while we handle the rest. Check us out at pushbuttonpodcast.com forward slash hero for 10% off the lifetime of your service with us and see the power of having an audio and video podcast growing and driving micro-celebrity status and business in your niche without you having to lift more than a finger to push that stop record button. Again, that's pushbuttonpodcast.com forward slash hero. See you there. And now back to the hero show. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about your own personal heroes, right? So every hero has their mentors, just like Frodo had Gandalf or Luke had Obi-Wan or Robert Kiyosaki has Rich Chad. Even Spider-Man had his uncle Ben. Who were some of your heroes? Were they real life mentors, speakers, authors, maybe peers who were a couple of years ahead of you? And how important have they been to what you've accomplished so far in your career? That's a good question. I think I've kind of bounced around with mentors throughout my life. In real estate, I have some partners that I work with that are sort of ahead of me. Um, that they've grown their company, you know, they've started earlier and, they, and they're larger. And I would say that they provide me a lot of inspiration, kind of, uh, you know, I do think there's a lot of value in 
you know, once you see that something can be accomplished, it's not possible, right? If someone else can do it, I can do it. No one broke the, right. Like no one broke the four minute mile for a hundred years, right? And then someone did and it was broken like a month later. Yeah. And now everyone, Um, like if you can't run a four minute mile, you're not even in the competition. Right. Right. Crazy. They're almost about to boom it. The two hour marathon below 201 this year, which is nuts. So I would say it's mainly peers have been my, my mentors and I like to try to keep in touch with people who have given me good insight and advice along the way, especially people that have built something that you mentioned earlier is culture in their business. So I, I first kind of started doing this thinking I was going to be a one-man show. I can do all these functions and, you know, I'll just grow it to the size that I want it where I can manage it and it can give a you know a lucrative income. Um, and then it quickly realized, oh, I'm not good at these certain things and I can, you know, I need a team. And, you know, the value of the culture created by that team is something I didn't expect. Um, and I learned that from, from a mentor, you know, Sometimes you might have non-profit making or break even sec- sectors of your company, but they create a critical mass that can that can feed that culture and, and enable a culture of excellence um, that's just hard to do with one person. That's, that was a huge thing for me. And I realized, oh man, I was like a solopreneur forever and I my income was capped. And I didn't understand why it was capped because I was like, there's no reason why it should be because I should be able to get past right. this and I just couldn't. And as soon as I started building a team and realizing that what comes with having a culture, having a group of people who are serving the same mission, you're just not even in the same world from a comp- competitive right. standpoint. Like it, there's no competition. Right, right. You're kind of a contractor when you're... I had a friend of mine that, you know, you hear all the time, it, one of the those tropes in the business world is if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with the team. And he was like, that's yep. bullshit. If you want to go fast, go with the team. If you want to go far, go with the team. And I've realized that's really true because the better my team gets and the better we get at building that team and that culture, like people who are solopreneurs just can't compete with us on speed or distance or price or anything. Like they just can't compete. And it's the same in any business category. It doesn't matter what it is. And it goes right back to that discussion we've been having this whole time. A community of people is like a superpower compared to an individual. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, and like one of those realizations is that like, hey, communities are made up of individuals, so you can't remove the individual from the equation. You have to make every individual count in your community. And so it's when you put those two things together, really caring about the individual and then building a community around them, that you get to, you get the benefits of those superpowers. Right. No, absolutely. And I I think the limitation and, and why so many people take a while to figure that out is because it's a scary jump, right? When you're just making money that kind of feeds your lifestyle, it's, it, there's a somewhat safe element to it. And you have to kind of reach out there to hire someone and take responsibility for paying them on a regular basis. And, you know, kind of, yet a lot of times you, you do that before you grow, right? So there's a little bit getting over your skis the right amount. Yeah, I remember that. That was one of my first discussions. I had a mentor who was like, he gave me, you know, the whole swift kick in the ass. Like, hey, you're your own bottleneck. Hire someone. Here's who to hire. Here's how much to pay them. Here's what you need them to do in your company. And I was like, I don't know about that. I can't afford that. And he was like, you can, but you're not going to understand it until after you do it. <laughs> I was like, right, right. Right. And then I did it. And I was like, oh, I see what we were talking about now. There's a whole much more resources available when you hire someone and you can have better output. So anyways, you, you get that on the other side. But one of the, you know, we were talking about our dashboards earlier. One of the numbers that I have in my dashboard, my spreadsheet dashboard, is not the number of employees we have, but the number of mouths that we feed around the dinner table for all of our employees, right? This is the, oh, okay. you know, it's the, our revenue put di- dinner on the table for these people. 
yeah, they're not all that's, ours. That's a nice way to think about yeah, it. Yeah, they're not all of our employees, right? It's their employees' family, their kids, their parents, whoever they're taking care of. And like, that's something that I think about regularly because to your point, that's the scary bit is that it's not, I'm no longer just responsible for me. I'm responsible for this community of people and their communities of people that our, our revenue helps support. Yeah, I like, the, I like that idea. And it also, it forces you to like get to know your staff. Who are you? Who do you live with? Who's your kids and your family? You actually start to think of them as a human being and not a cog in your machine. So it's one of the ways that I try to make sure that we're building the community into our company culture. Yeah, that's a great idea. Do you come up with that on your own? Sort of. It's a conglomeration of a lot of things I've learned from my mentors over the years, right? You know, speaking of yeah. my heroes, right? I had a, one of the companies that I worked for a while, I was a director of marketing for them, like C-level, and I reported directly to the president and the board of directors and whatnot every week. And so I got to sit in all the C-level meetings because I was on the team. And I, one of the things that the president was always talking about every, at every meeting was like, we have a hundred mouths to feed. <laughs> and so he's like, oh, payroll came before everything else. He's like, it's, if we have to do whatever we're doing in marketing, whatever we're doing in sales, whatever we're doing in engineering, whatever we're doing in procurement, all of it comes back to, does this help us feed the mouths around our tables or not? And so it came a little bit from that and a few other things where I was like, I realized, you know, the community aspect, when you put all those together, that's where I've ended up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So one more question here for you. One of the things that heroes, that makes heroes heroic is that they live by a code. So for instance, Batman never kills his enemies. He only ever puts him in Arkham Asylum. So as we wrap up the interview, I want to talk about the top one, maybe two principles that you live your life by. Maybe something you wish you'd known when you first started out on your own entrepreneurial journey. I would say one, like transparency and honesty. Uh, I've always been kind of a very transparent, uh, straightforward person. And I think that translates very well when you're dealing with investors money, right? Like there's a big responsibility and hold the custodian of it in so, to some degree. And I, I think that, you know, being honest and direct and not sugarcoating things and not overhyping things is, is very important. I think it lines up with who I am and I think it's a, an important aspect. And I had another one there for a second. Well, here are the question. Yeah, yeah your uh, guiding principles, something that, you know, you live your life by. And I would say then always be curious and, and constantly learned. So, you know, one thing that's been great about starting my own company is that I'm constantly figuring out new aspects, meeting new people, uh, kind of figuring out how the world works every, every day. And I think if you can maintain that curiosity and that, that hunger for knowledge, you know, life's always interesting and you're always growing. That's one of those things that, you know, you hear that growing up that like, hey, you know, you always want to be learning because, you know, once you fully ripen, then you start to rot, right? So you always want to continue growing, right? And I always thought that at some point in my business, I would like learn all the things there was to know. And what you realize is the more that you learn, the more you realize you don't know a damn thing about anything. And so like every time I get to a new stage in my business, I'm like, oh, well, now I have to learn about HR and payroll and I have to learn about compliance in multiple states and now compliance in multiple countries. And now we have to learn about like this and the other thing, and there's always like whatever stage you're at, there's always a whole new set of problems that you weren't aware of before. And it's not like, you know, we get to $100,000 in revenue and we have these problems. You get to half a million dollars in revenue, you have a new set of problems. You get to a million dollars in revenue, you have a new set of problems. You just get new problems for right. each new stage of your business. You got to learn all those things and everything that goes with it. So it definitely it keeps you young, keeps you on your toes, keeps you, you know, alive and motivated. I mean, it keeps life interesting too. I, I, I agree. I think a lot of people always think you're going to get to a point where you know, I guess, it all regarding what you need to know and then you're going to kind of coast on it and i and if you ever got there i think it would be very boring yeah and it's just yeah. for anyone who's on that journey it doesn't happen you never get there it doesn't happen either so <laughs> as far as i'm aware 
and never make it to the point where you know all the things. And yet the other thing about honesty and integrity, I just want to point this out for you because I think it's really fascinating. We're getting into the 250 episodes-ish for The Hero Show now. And one of the things that I've asked this question to everyone, and one of the things that I've always loved about it is roughly 80, 85, maybe even 90% of the people when I ask that question, they always respond with some version of integrity. And my one of the reasons I built this show, The Hero Show, and the whole concept is the idea that Culturally, we have this narrative around entrepreneurship that entrepreneurs are villains, right? And, you know, every story you read in, you know, on books and the kids' TV shows and big major movies, the villain is always some variation of entrepreneur spills oil on ducks for money, right? Um, and I've always hated that because I was like, it makes for good storytelling, but it doesn't have a good reflection of reality. And then we have a lot of entrepreneurs like myself, you know, as a younger entrepreneur and a lot of people that I interact with that are like, they feel bad for making a profit or they feel bad for putting their value into the world. Um, and not realizing that like, hey, entrepreneurs are actually the ones who are making the world a better place. And they're taking the problems that we have and they're looking at how do I solve that and how do I make it better? And anyways, and I think you know, the fact that you operate with value and integrity as like a baseline is just, it just continues to prove that point that entrepreneurs are the ones that are making the world a better place. So anyways, that's just a, a way to say thank you. Appreciate the work that you're doing in the world. Oh, I, I appreciate this. This is a very interesting conversation. I, I like the way you phrase it around like the hero's journey. It's a good, it's interesting approach. I like it. Yeah, I always, I figured, you know, Marvel built a, you know, multi-billion dollar organization over the last several years over the this idea of building a superhero character arc. So I just stole their character arc, which we just went through, yeah. right? The origin story, superpower, fatal flaw, and, you know, just build them into like, hey, how do we build, you know, everyone has their own superpower, their own superhero story in there. Right, it's going well for Marvel, certainly. Absolutely. So, I think that's a great place to wrap our interview, but I do finish every interview with a simple challenge. I call it the Heroes Challenge, and I do this to help get access to stories that you might not otherwise find on your own. So the question is simple. Do you have someone in your life or in your network who you think has a cool entrepreneurial story? Who are they? First names are fine, and why do you think they should come share their story with us here on The Hero Show? First person that comes to mind for you. Yes. One of my partners, that I, one of the companies that I work with quite often, is uh, Excite Capital, and um, they're three founders and they're all from Africa, two from Nigeria and one from, well, I forget what country Leslie's from, Malawi, I believe. And they're just very energetic guys who have a growth perspective on the world that they're just great to work with. And I just love the fact that they came here in their 20s and they're very successful in real estate and in their you know, careers prior to real estate. And they're just, they break down barriers. We've done a number of deals together and, you know, sometimes at the end, end stages or you're raising capital and you're kind of button heads with lenders and it, you know, it's, it's stressful and being on calls with them is just very motivating. And we're like, all right, let's get this done. What do we need to do to get through, you know, the hurdle? Like there's no going back. It's just, how do we go over through? How's it, how are we going to get there? We're going to get there. Just how? Yep. And they're, they're great to work with. And, um, I can make an introduction. Yeah, also, we'll see about making an introduction after after the call here today. Uh, thank you for that. We always, you know, they'd always say yes, but when they do, we get some good stories out of it. But for us here in comic books, there's always the crowd of people at the end who are clearing and you know cheering and clapping for the acts of heroism. So as we close, I want to, you know, our analogous to that is where can people find you if they want to work with you, right? Where can they light up the bat signal, so to speak? And say, hey, Chris, you know, I would like, love to maybe be an investor with you. And I think more importantly than where is who are the right types of people to reach out and actually maybe ask to be on your investor list? Yeah, so so the right type of people, um, we typically uh, only work with accredited investors. 
and what accredited investors means. And it's a, a security and exchange commission definition. And what it means is that you make $200,000 a year or more, and that you have more, or you have more than a million dollars in net worth, not including your primary residence. And the reason that we do that is because that is what enables us to do these private placements and not have to register as a, like an IPO, which is an enormous undertaking. So um, if you meet that criteria and you're interested in learning more about real estate investing or passively, we have a lot of people who are interested in real estate investing and just don't have the time. So like have a passion for real estate and want to learn about it uh, through investing or you just don't have a passion for real estate and just like the idea of a diversified portfolio. Uh, you can reach us at emcapitalgroup.com or email me at chrislento at emcapitalgroup.com. In that space where you're an accredited investor, definitely take the time to reach out. I know personally, that's one of my goals is to get ourselves to that status so we can, we can start getting into that world. That's our next goal. So, and you've gotten a chance to hear a little bit from Chris and how he thinks about building communities and building these investments. And I think that's a fantastic way to have your money take care of you instead of the other way around. So Chris, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story a little bit. Do you have any final words of wisdom for our audience before I hit the stop record button? Um, well, I just think if this is something that you find interesting, it's a whole world of uh, real estate investing that many people are unaware of. So feel free to reach out. I look forward to hearing from you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. Have a great day. Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The Hero Show, where we work to shift the cultural narrative around entrepreneurship and celebrate the heropreneurs who make our world a better place. Don't forget to visit our website at theheroshow.tv, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. If you found value in our show, we truly appreciate a rating on iTunes, or better yet, Share it with a friend to help us spread the message of entrepreneurship as a force for good. Curious to learn more about the stories and insights of these incredible heropreneurs? Check out our in-depth interviews and resources on our website. Together, let's support and inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs as they embark on their own heroic journeys. Join us again next week for another episode of The Hero Show where we'll continue to explore the world of heropreneurs, their superpowers, and the positive impact they bring to our lives. Until then, stay heroic.